Hi, uh, good morning in California, good afternoon in Texas, a good evening in Inverness in Scotland. Today we are back with Boom It's On The Blockchain and I will bring in our co-host today, Garrett. How are things with you, Garrett? Good. How are you doing, Alistair? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. And today we've got a special guest, Crypto Mum 2. How are you guys? Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to see you. So perfect. So today we're going to actually speak about a bit different from our normal boom it's on the blockchain because Crypto Mum 2 is in today. We will, I'll see if I can actually move you to the middle. There we go. <laughs> That's better. So, um, and then we're going to speak about basically your background and your new book that you've launched here just now with everyone up back there, the yeah. Bitcoin Cinderella, and go into some details about that. So, just to kick things off, then, Crypto Mum 2, just give a bit of background. Yeah, no, I appreciate being here. So, my uh, career path has been really diverse. My background is I started off in law and I'm still active in the legal area. And I, I realized um, early on that um, I loved being of service to others. And so I was always looking for projects and entrepreneur type of work where I could um, help others. And um, but it also kind of led me back to the children. And I ended up about 17 years ago um, going back and to school, getting a master's and the special ed area. And so I'm dual certified and I'm a national board certified teacher in special education. I've been doing that for like, as I mentioned, about 17 years now. And because of the fact that I'm also a, a single mom and educator and lawyer, I, you know, I've kind of learned about the blockchain and everything on it and have been taking a deep dive to try to make sure that through my show, Crypto Mom 2, I can educate people on how to navigate, you know, both um, with resources and safely and on all that other good stuff, because it's a fascinating area. There's a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, well, let's just like dive straight into the book then. So we've got the book here. Yeah. Bitcoin Cinderella. Look, I've got actually got a hard copy of it right there. You know, looks good. Uh, my son, we've been reading it to him and I was telling him, uh, Crypto Mom 2 offline that uh, yeah, my seven-year-old actually preferred uh, the Bitcoin Cinderella over Enid Blyton's Secret Seven this week. So <laughs> so that was a good choice, you know what I mean? So And he's interested in, in that stuff anyway, you know, and then he, he asked the question, oh, what's Bitcoin trading at? <laughs> and then he's asking all these other questions as well, which is good. So it sort of asks it, you know, having read the book this week with my son, I think that when you start going into it, to me, it's a bit like, for people to understand, it's a bit like if anyone's ever read The Alchemist out there, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like a parable in terms of, you know, each page has its own story and it's lots of little stories put together, providing little insights of wisdom as it goes through the book itself. So, so you know, just give us a bit of background where it came from and how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, no, you know, this has been kind of um, simmering in my brain for a while. I... Um, I knew I wanted to write a story for children and for adults that were learning about the blockchain and cryptocurrency and everything else that's, um, you know, involved with uh, the blockchain. And as I, I've been, you've been in this area for a lot longer than me, but I, I just started, you know, learning about this about four years ago. And I realized that as I was learning um, what I know now, I didn't know then. And I know that what I'm going to know in five years, you know, it's, I'm going to be at a whole different level. And as a teacher, what we teach in kindergarten, we don't teach in fifth grade. So I knew that I needed, I wanted to write a story that would help people who were just starting out, as well as families that wanted to open up a conversation with their kids, because um, youth, they're online, they, you know, they, they're, they're playing games, they're doing things on the blockchain. But I wanted them to be able to learn about the terminology. And um, I thought that a fairy tale is a great way to kind of embed the technical terms as well as make it a fun read. And um, I was inspired by my daughter. Um, and so um, 
her name's not Samantha, which is the character in the story, but Samantha, the Cinderella in the story, ends up going on an adventure to find her mom. And um, as she's trying to find her mom, her, and in the traditional Cinderella story, the mom dies. In this Cinderella story, the mom actually is one of the original blockchain engineers um, working with Satoshi. I mean, really, we don't know who Satoshi is. And so she's actually on another adventure in the metaverse. And so Samantha's trying to find her. But at, as she's trying to find her, she's also learning about all the various terms because there are clues that her mom has dropped for her to find. And um, so it's a really fun story, but at the same time that it's fun, it's educational too. And I also um, offer to all the readers, you know, access to free online resources. So that way they can kind of keep current with what's going on. So that's yeah. an overview. <laughs> I love it. Very nice. So, you know, and I think, uh, well, uh, the way I was thinking we could go through it today is we could just talk about some of the key areas in the book itself. So, yeah. you know, it basically set the background itself in terms of what happened. And it was really from, I think, chapter three, when you start getting into Bitcoin itself, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and I was thinking, you know, Garrett's our young whiz kid here. He can do a bit of explanation for the people out there as well. So, Satoshi Nakamoto, Garrett, you know, you give your little two cents in in terms of what he created and everything else. Yeah, it's um, I think there's a, a little bit of a debate. I mean, it might be one person, it could be a pseudonym, it could be multiple people. Um, but you know, there were a lot of uh, you know, really impactful people in the early days of Bitcoin, like uh, Nick, Nick Zabo and Hal Finney and um, I think uh, Adam Back as well. So it's probably between those three guys, you know, maybe it was one of them, maybe it was a little bit of all of them. But, um, you know, people have always kind of wondered and we, uh, the public never figured it out. Maybe there's somebody who, who knows and has found out who this guy is, but um, one thing I do find uh, kind of peculiar, and the people did actually think it was this guy, but one of Hal Finney's friends, that was actually his name, is Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto. And back in like 2014, people like were hunting this guy down because they thought it was him. But uh, it was interesting to see that, you know, hey, they were friends and they had worked on stuff into their adult life um, with each other. And, you know, who, who knows? But I think it of all of them, it might be uh, Hal Finney. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? So in the in the book, um, I, Alistair, you did a forward, uh, but right before your forward, I just uh, did a quote, and it was December two thousand and ten. Um, There's more work to do, and that's the uh, you know the you know again. There is always more work to do, and I think that that's a, a great kind of lead in for where the book is going to be going because this area is just constantly adding more layers. So it's very, very interesting. And, and I, you know, you can get a master's in this, there's just so much going on. <laughs> yeah. So no, so that, so that's interesting from that perspective. So, so when she realizes and she starts to search for his mother, so what's the first area of the book that you actually go into in terms of Bitcoin, you know? Well, so what happens is that um, a little bit of, without, you know, again, I'm, I'm not going to be giving the story away, but the um, Samantha's dad is a traditional banker and um, he doesn't really, he supports the mom and her vision of, you know, working on the blockchain and everything, but he doesn't really understand it. And so um, there's a little bit of family conflict, which is actually why um, the mom decides to kind of um, leave temporarily. And, um, but when she makes that decision, she um, leaves a special gift for Samantha. And the gift is uh, an embroidered purse that has some numbers in it and some words in it that uh, Samantha has no clue what they are. And in fact, it's a wallet and it's the seed words, but not all the seed words are there. And so she ends up going on a quest to find out what is all this. And in doing that, she starts to meet people online and um, starts to learn more about what Bitcoin is and what the her mom might have left her. And then that also kind of leads her into her next adventure of meeting the prince, who also is very avant-garde and very knowledgeable about crypto and things like that. So, you know, that that's a whole nother 
a whole nother area that we can talk about as well. So, so just the, so I'll bring Garrett back in there as well. So, so seed words. If, if you can explain to the viewers, because we, you know we've got a lot of people who watch the show that are from the energy space, probably don't have set up digital wallets, things like that now as right. well. Thought about it. So, seed words, Garrett. Can you explain to everyone what that is and how that works? Yeah, very uh, simply put, um, there. You know, these wallets for um, pretty much any blockchain out there, they come with the ability to uh, back up your wallet, back up your money uh, with 12 or 24 words. And these are unique words that are um, in uh, this, uh, I think it's, I forget what the number is, but it's this one of these uh, Bitcoin improvement BIP uh, protocols. And, uh, you know, you write down the words and technically speaking, since the words are relatively unique, you only need like the first three letters of each word because there's only, you know, one or two in the whole uh, code base that actually have the same, you know, first three letters. I don't even think many of them do. So uh, that's uh, one of the cool things here. And that's how you back up your wallet. It's one of the easiest ways. The other way you do it is write down this long private key, which is a string of letters and numbers. And that's too much for most people. So the words, seed words were easier. Yeah. So what happens is that she doesn't have all the seed words. And so um, she ends up um, down the road when she meets the prince. Um, he has, and this is something that, again, I will heavily caution, you don't share your seed words with anyone at all, <laughs> except maybe except maybe your family. So that way um, they will have the ability to help you in case you need to open up the wallet. <laughs> but um, in, the, in the story, uh, that's how she ends up connecting with the prince, because when they end up combining the seed words, the wallet opens and that's why they know that they are meant to be. So instead of having the glass slipper, they have a, um, a wallet that ends up being mutually shared. But again, you never do that in real life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just going to read one part from the book here for people to, this explains Bitcoin actually really well. So this is what I was meaning about having little insights and nuggets of wisdom throughout the book. So, you know, I'm reading to my seven-year-old son and he's like in the story and then in amongst the story, there's little bits of information like this. So, so Bitcoin is a global, borderless, decentralized protocol that enables peer-to-peer -peer exchange of the Bitcoin currency, which is a fixed max supply and a known decreasing issuance rate. Now, there's not many fairy tales with information like that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I am trying to use, you know, technical terms and information. I do have a glossary at the back. Um, you know, and I, and I am trying to explain it, um, within the book. Um, but again, there will always be questions that people have. And, and those questions are really great because as the next episode happens then they can be further explained. Yeah. So, so for, for people out there to understand the technology of Bitcoin, because, you know, most people like my son, what's Bitcoin trading at? You know what I mean? 30,000. Oh, I want a few of them. So <laughs> he, he, that's what he wants to do. So Garrett, you, if you explain the technology behind Bitcoin, what actually they managed to do and what Satoshi Nakamoto did? Well, yeah, the, the technology behind Bitcoin, the most... Um... I think the most incredible thing here is the fact that uh, this is this blockchain tech and that's what everybody ends up talking about is the the blockchain tech. And what that allowed us to do is it, you know, solve some major problems here that were um, kind of identified in the 1990s by some of those people I said, namely uh, Nick Zabo with the uh, Bitgold was one of his white papers that he put out. And Satoshi was able to solve the um, the double spend problem. So, you know, you have all these 21 million possible coins in the system and you cannot double spend them and you cannot create more without. I mean, hypothetically, you could have consensus among these miners, the people running the software and democratically maybe agree to more. But most people aren't going to go for that. So that's um, it keeps the uh, integrity of the software. And it's also decentralized, so you know it can't can't be shut down very easily. So that's uh, helpful too. So you mentioned you know Bitcoin mining, and one of the things decisions I I made when I wrote this first Cinderella book, and it has all the elements of the Cinderella traditional Cinderella story, um, is I knew that 
this would be a surface book with introducing people to the ideas of what blockchain and Bitcoin is. But then they're gonna, there was going to be a need for additional follow-up adventures that she's going to go on. And one of the adventures that she's going to be going on is to explore really what is Bitcoin mining. And I'm also a Bitcoin miner, so I, I have a little bit of knowledge now. Um, but I want to, in that episode, in that book, I also want to talk about, you know, environmental impacts and what is going on in the industry. And, you know, again, there's a lot of different things that, um, these, this book series is going to explore from tokens to NFTs to everything metaverse, you know, because again, it's, um, there's too much to put in one book. And I want to make sure that as, um, individuals are reading that they can also grasp the technical side and and have fun with it because uh, like I said I started four years ago and and there's so much I'm still learning and I I want to make it fun for those that are coming up and to use individuals like both of yourselves as the resources to help educate yeah. So, you know, for people out there watching as well, you know, the process of Bitcoin mining, if you want to just technically explain how that works, then got it. And because I know you're a Bitcoin miner in the past. Yeah, I've, I've mined Bitcoin on uh, numerous occasions. And, uh, you know, there's obviously some caveats to that. It is a lot of hard work, you know, to kind of learn some of the stuff and keep the equipment running. But, um, you know, how it works is uh, very early on, you know, you were able to run this software that would um, solve math problems that were given to it. And you could do it on your own. You know, you were able to do it on a CPU. And then eventually it became too much for one computer. And then people had to pool together and pool their computing power together. And that hence started mining pools like Slush's pool. And uh, a little later on, then in the, it became too much for CPUs and people had to move to GPUs, which is graphics cards. Uh, you've probably seen a lot of those set up in arrays. And, uh, you know, then, you know, as a pooled mining operation, you, you know, you could solve these math problems that were coming from the network to create new Bitcoins, the GPUs. And then even that became not enough power and they had to make special custom computers called ASICs. Um, application-specific integrated circuits, and they had to make those and uh, begin selling those um, to Bitcoin miners. And that became really, um, today, pooled mining with ASIC computers is the only way you're going to mine Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, um, you know, Ethereum came along, they kept the GPU dream alive. They made a so-called ASIC-proof algorithm, you know, to kind of keep the uh, GPU mining around and um you know companies like uh nvidia i'm sure really made a lot of money off of that gold rush so <laughs> yeah and i think you know going back into what your project is in terms of you know a lot of people talk about the, the co2 emissions of uh bitcoin mining got it so just give a little bit about the sort of energy consumption and energy usage for this you know yeah you know so i'm mainly focused on kind of stripping away the um you know need for mining in a in a digital currency and looking at um you know there's a lot of other great solutions out there where um you know people are doing proof of authority or proof of stake you know there's many different approaches and um you know running these blockchains at a um you know you know it's a, it's net positive for green you know, it's net positive for green and there's no pollution, but I'm focused on doing that, you know, making sure it's, you know, there are low carbon chains out there for companies and corporate to maintain their climate pledges. But then also, um, you know, one of the things I'm really big on is using the underlying technology to ensure integrity of the data. So that's very important. And, um, you know, a lot of, People, um, I don't think, have capitalized on that opportunity yet. But I think uh, for carbon tracking, the honesty piece and being able to hold companies accountable and hold each other accountable is very important, you know, with the with the blockchain tracking. I think what you're sharing is very important, especially because we see what's going on with the climate right now. So I think it's critical that we we activate and we um, incorporate. So for sure. Yeah. And yeah. then 
you know, the next section of the book I quite liked, we started speaking about that she suddenly went into this world. It was like the metaverse world. And it was a different world whereby everyone's speaking this language about Bitcoin and things to do with it. So she saw people speaking about Ethereum, altcoins, protocols, and tokenization. There were so many protocols. So yeah. in terms of that as well, you sort of just touching that section, Crypto Mum 2. But what were you wanting to explain to people out there? Well, um, in that in that chapter area, she, uh, again, it was part of her search for the mom. And she was on more of the traditional social media. And then she was realizing she wasn't getting where, you know, the information that she needed. And so she hopped over to, you know, different sites uh, like Discord and Telegram and other places where she could actually start to interact with individuals and ask questions. And, and she actually, at that point, uh, meets an individual who becomes her fairy godmother of the technical side. And it happens to be Crypto Mom too. And so, you know, again, um, I wrote myself into the book because I wanted to be able to have the ability to kind of share some of the technical side and, um, you know, keep um, everything kind of moving forward in, in her education. Um, and so she kept asking, Samantha keeps asking questions. And um, again, how she feels is how I felt and how I sometimes still feel when I'm, you know, interviewing or meeting people and having conversations, you know, because I feel like we're sponges, we're constantly learning and supporting. And, um, and that's the, the, the flavor of the book too, is um, she is meeting people who are there to answer questions, um, not just myself, but who can help her in guiding her. And that's what we're doing with the next generation and even this generation, because again, um, we need to incorporate this information to financial literacy and everything else that we're teaching our youth. Absolutely. So, so for people who are there, you know, I was to saying that so many protocols. So can you explain to people simply what a protocol is then got it? Yeah. Protocol is basically at a software level. It is, um, you know, how a coin works at a software level and how the issuance works, you know, what the model is, you know, what the max supply is and how that's written into a base of code that ensures code is law, so to speak, in that network. Yeah. And the other thing that, um, you know, I learned um, as I've been navigating this, you know, it's, it's important to read the white papers or the light papers, however, whatever paper or name that they want to give it, because some of it is, and I'm a lawyer, there's a lot of standardized legal, you know, terminology in a lot of these papers, but there's also the, the, the business plan, the idea of what is the vision. And, and that's also important to me when I'm talking to people, if you can't, if you don't know who it is that you're investing in or, you know, um, connecting with, then if something happens to that protocol, that token, that coin, you, you know, again, there's there's things that could always happen in a traditional business as well as on a blockchain business, but you have to do your research um, because you know, again it's important to read and see where what what problem do they want to solve and uh, who are they connected with in order to um, facilitate that. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're thinking, and then you go into the next section of the chapter of the book, you start speaking about like Web three, you know. <laughs> So explain a bit more about that chapter then, CryptoMum2. So what I've been learning about Web3, and you guys might have, um, you know, even a better handle than I do on it, you know, the Internet's evolved over time. And how we kind of use emails and information and security on the Internet, you know, it's, it's gone from many, many layers. And my understanding of Web3 is, you know, it's, it's going to be, um, you know, very blockchain oriented, but also very commercial oriented, as well as very problem solving oriented. And so there, I, you know, I don't even, it's hard for me to even imagine where we are going to be able to go, because I think that's our limit is our imagination. You know, we have, there's a, there's a whole slew of possibilities. I don't know, Garrett, do you want to explain a little bit more in terms of your understanding of Web3? Yeah, with Web3, it's, um, you know, really a natural progression from um, the semantic web of Web2, um, you know, where now 
we're solving the same uh, you know things we did for information, just pure information, uh, with you know um, basically money with money, the money piece of it, and um, you know Web three is really. Uh, there was a lot of people that thought maybe I remember like 10 years ago, they thought maybe it would do more with AI. Um, I think AI underpins really every iteration, but I think uh, Web3 ended up really sinking its teeth in and becoming the Internet of money. Um, people are already talking about Web4, which is probably going to be the metaverse stuff. Um, you know, that that's a very interesting thing, and I'm not sure how much of it will have to do with blockchain, how much of it will have to do with, um, you know, the previous so-called iteration, but it's really interesting to see the forward thought nature of it and see people um, enthusiastic about creating it. Yeah. When you talk about metaverses, um, what was interesting to me as I taught during the COVID time period, and we were on Zoom. And I and as I've been learning more about the metaverse, you know, one of my dreams is to actually have virtual schools within metaverses so the kids can have their avatars sit at their desk. So if we ever have to go back to a remote type of environment, it's a lot more interactive than what it was. Um, but, you know, again, those all of those things are possibilities for the future. Um, and there's no limit to what we can do. Absolutely. I would agree with that 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah, and then you give a bit of insight to the metaverse for anyone who's not aware of that, apart from you see Mark Zuckerberg talking about it, you know? Yeah, and the other thing that I want to mention is in this book, um, the the traditional Cinderella ball is uh, kind of uh, split, and um, the king and queen want to have their ball at the palace, so they do, but the prince wants to have his ball within a metaverse. And that's actually where he meets um, Cinderella in the metaverse. So um, a lot of the uh, the traditional elements have um, an overlap on the, the technical side. So that way the definition can be um, introduced, but also um, individuals who are reading the story can actually experience it in their own in their own way. Yeah. And, and you, you give your overview of what the metaverse is then. Got it. Yeah, the metaverse, I think, uh, is very, um, very much so virtual reality and augmented reality. I think um, the most meaningful element of this to consumers by far, I've thought this for 10 years at this point, it's crazy to say, but I think it will be augmented reality. I thought it was going to be here a lot sooner, though. <laughs> I thought we would be um, all using smart glasses by now, but... Um, you know, that that I think is going to be most consumers interactions with uh, the metaverse is through smart glasses. You know, there will be intelligent avatars and NPCs, um, you know, kind of in these worlds and uh, potentially that will make the, um, you know, computing interface, whatever that might be. It could go virtual reality, but I do think people are more comfortable already wearing glasses all the time. Uh, so the more we can get it closer to these, I think you'll have tons of people get on board with it. But uh, right now there's a lot of stuff happening with VR. So it's, that's exciting too. Yeah. And then I think for people to realize that and going forward is, you know, the, the cell phone that we use, we're stuck to this thing. We're all looking at devices. We're just floating away, you know, in 10 years from now, the cell phone probably won't even exist we'll end up talking to people through the, the, the you know, the AR glasses, yeah. we'll contacting people there. The one thing about the metaverse, you know, as we start to get into, not what was the movie by James Cameron where there were um, Avatar, you know? Oh, Avatar, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was, you know, essentially for people back home to think, if they're thinking, you know, and in 10 years from now, we can actually be climbing Mount Everest, put on the suit, we can go there and you can feel absolutely everything and be with someone there. And in a lot of ways, this technology is going to take us away from being sort of couch potatoes and going like this. Mm -hmm. And we'll be a lot more interactive and going forward as well. So I think the... I don't know if anyone's seen that movie, Wally. -E, yes. Uh, the cartoon <laughs> as well, where we just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and we didn't want to walk, and we just went, we floated around in those things, you know. 
little hoverboards. <laughs> you know, that was the way the world was going. But I think the metaverse is going to stop that. And then hopefully we'll, uh, we'll all become a lot more interactive, I think, from the likes of what's happened the last pandemic as well, that people realize fitness and looking after your health is now more important than ever before. Yeah. And I just think the technology and going forward, you know, once we can move away from just everything on cell phones, because it's just like, we're all in this the whole time, which is difficult to not be. Suddenly if we're in the AR glasses, then, you know, it's and be able to contact people and speak to people through that as well. You know, hopefully that'll uh, change things going forward. And, you know, that's an interesting part of the, the book as well. And, you know, how that part of the metaverse when he meets meets her there as well. The, the, the sad bit of the book was, that, you know, it, it, it's to be continued. You know what I mean? I was thinking, well, is he going to marry her on that? But he doesn't, he doesn't even get to that bit, you know? So it's... Um, so, but that's good though, uh, Crypto Mum too, because it basically allows, you know, to have the next uh, iteration of the book itself. Yeah. So, so what are your thoughts in going forward for other books in the series? Well, I know, I know of three right off the top. I, and I don't know if I'm going to be writing them simultaneously or, you know, in different parts. Um, definitely about Bitcoin mining, because that's close to my heart. Um, also, uh, it extends the idea of, you know, understanding more about Bitcoin. Um, and then also about NFTs and that that whole world and the metaverse for sure. Um, the other thing I do want to mention is that I'm having the book translated. It's um, actually already translated into Spanish. And so it's Span it's going to be Spanish English. Um, and that will be um, live uh, probably by July 1st. Um, and then I have um, on the list of languages that are um, being translated into is French and German and uh, Portuguese and um, I, I, Swahili that came up the other day. So, um, you know, again, I'm excited to have the initial book translated into multiple languages because I know that all around the world um, people are exploring this area. And I, I want to have it be available um, so people can share it with their families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, no, that's good as well. So let's go to my favorite part of the book is the bit <laughs> I wrote at the front, you know? Yes, your forward, of course. <laughs> forward, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm off to read this out and stuff like that as well. So I'll bring that in and then I'll do a bit of background to it. So, you know, for everyone out there, let's see. There it is, you know. So yeah. super proud of that. You know, thank very much for including me in there. So I'm going to read this part here. So it's like, so the blockchain now enables governments to distribute tokenized value of significant real assets into the hands of its citizens using digital wallets. Blockchain can provide an alternative to universal basic income to create a model designed to provide more than just pure survival. This dream can become a reality with the advent of blockchain and tokenization. Yep. So, so important. So that's it. So I'll bring that up there as well. So AmeriCoin tokenization of federal assets. So so just to give a little bit of interest as to what I'm doing and Garrett's involved in the project now is, you know, we're tokenizing essentially energy assets and mm -hmm. allowing people to have fractional ownership of energy assets in this new form of tokenization. But really, when I got involved in the Libertarian Party, and it was with Adam Kokesh, and then there was people who were advisors in the project were guys from Bitcoin.com and also John McAfee. So what we were looking to do was to take the model, and he called it AmeriCoin, and to tokenize federal, uh, federal assets. So why do we want to do something like that? So, you know, and going forward, you know, I, you know I've, I'm a special needs dad. You know, you were saying a special needs teacher. If you, you know, we, we talk about right now, there's 540 odd thousand uh, homeless people in America right now. Of that, 60% have got mental health problems. So they've slipped through the cracks of society. There, there is essentially nearly no way back for a huge majority of these people. So unless they've got family members that can help them, there's no way that they'll actually manage to get back out from the, the trouble they're in right now. And the, the scary thing about that is 12.5% of these people are ex-veterans as well. So we had Memorial Day last week. And, you know, Garrett and I spoke about this before. There's 50,000 uh, homeless veterans on the street right now. And they're in a position whereby unless someone goes out to help them, they're just, again, they've slipped through the cracks of society. 
So why would we want to tokenize federal assets? So if you think the government owns the land, so the original constitution that everyone always talks about right now because of what's happened with the Second Amendment, First Amendment and all that, but the original constitution said the land belongs to the people, not the government or the king. And the king they were speaking about was King George of England at the time. But up until now, there's never been a technology whereby 300 million people can sort of have ownership of these federal assets. There's no way for it to happen. But through tokenization on the blockchain, what it does is we take all the federal assets. Now, according to Wikipedia, that's worth $271 trillion. You know, so if we start thinking about balance sheets for traditional bankers, again, coming back to the book, my dad was a traditional banker, so it was assets versus liabilities. You know, the U.S. government's 30 trillion or 35 trillion in the whole. It's a disaster. But wait a minute, we've got 271 trillion in assets. And that's probably not even correct because the price of oil has gone up. The price of all commodities have gone up. So when they put that in. So say for argument's sake, you know, if we dropped all this into an asset, now, what would happen is government would still operate in the same way. The difference now is that the distributions would come to the people based on social security. So we would set up everyone to have a wallet. At the time when we were investigating this back in 2020, um, uh, we spoke to the company Ledger. So people out there, they're the, probably one of the leading off-chain digital wallet companies in the world. Um, and I asked them, how long would it take for us to set up a digital wallet for everyone in America based on social security? And they said, mm, around about two weeks. <laughs> wow. So that's all. That's how long it takes. So it's two weeks. But then he goes, but you need someone to be putting in distributions into it or everyone's going to have a digital wallet with nothing in. So then it comes back to what we're speaking about and going forward is because of technology, because of AI, you hear people like Elon Musk even speaking about it, you know, there's, you know, once autonomous driving comes in and because of 5G, autonomous driving is coming in more and more. So if you go down to any port in America now, there's, the chances are it's autonomous driving that's going on. So it's not long off there. So once that actually comes out into the roads, because Tesla now is autonomous driving, you know, you can go out and drink 10 beers, get behind your Tesla and just get Tesla to take you home, which is... <laughs> probably less risky than driving. I haven't had a drink for three years, by the way. So you know, I'm still over three years. But, you know, I've got a lot of Scottish friends and things like that as well. People don't encourage drink driving. But if you live in the country and you've got to go quite far, and America has always been traditionally a bad place for drink driving because, yeah, true. you know, it's, it's super strict in Scotland. You know, I mean, you basically can't have even a glass of wine now if you get caught blowing it. Here, you still get a chance to try and walk along the the, you know, the white line <laughs> to make it. Oh, I can walk the white line after 20 beers. You're okay back in the car, get home quick, you know. But so, you know, but essentially this is coming in and a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. So mm -hmm. suddenly, it, you know, if we did universal basic income, if we gave out, say, $1,000, that's originally for Andrew Yang. So Andrew Yang brought this right back in. So, you know, you're thinking... I'm involved in the Libertarian Party at the time. We're coming up with this concept. A lot of the Bitcoin blockchain people involved in the Libertarian Party because that's what it sort of evolved from. But then you've got someone like Andrew Yang who left the Democrat Party, basically set up his own party. He didn't call it the birthday party. That was, what's his name? <laughs> the birthday party. Uh, easy. But he basically set it up because he believes in blockchain and technology, but he believes in a UBI. The problem with a UBI is it's still an allowance, you know, so the government's giving you allowance of $1,000. Now, the problem is if they all gave us $1,000 a month, then it's going to push inflation even higher than the 9% it's right now. So might inflation might go to 15, 16%. So your $1,000 is essentially worth $850 a month, you know, within a matter of months. It's actually devalued down to that. The thing about doing this in terms of tokenization and creating a Metacoin is we all now get distributions from the asset. So as the asset makes money, so 54%, so the government's making money, we get distributions made of that on social security. So what it does do is it actually encourages us to for the government to do a good job and the government to continue to keep making money. Because right now, the, it, when if you look at, you know, essentially politicians make a lot of money when they go into government doesn't make sense to most people out there. They're on a salary of $187,000 and they're in for 10 years and they come out and they're worth 60 million. 
you know, mm-hmm. everyone would love a job like that, you know. <laughs> so how does that happen? You know, oh, well, you know, and then we were speaking about, you know, lobbyists putting money into them and all these other things. And the problem is there's no transparency with it. But if we tokenize the federal assets and get distributions from the federal um, assets through tokenization, suddenly it creates a system whereby everyone is now no longer worthless. And that was my whole point of wanting to do this is, so this person who's autistic, who's got other mental health problems, that's sleeping under a bridge, that's fall through the cracks of society, because he's worthless, we don't want to help him. And America doesn't want to help him. Whereby, if this person is getting distribution in AmeriCoins, then just because they're no longer worthless, we'll find a way to get his AmeriCoins from him. <laughs> <laughs> But that might be the, all that they need to help them, you know, because that person no longer, and we can have this person getting access to digital money there as well. And then we started to do a sort of deeper dive, and it's uh, a friend of mine, Giovanni, that's uh, doing a similar type pro, um, program out in Italy. And then he thinks what it'll do is it'll move to this next level whereby, you know, you're getting your distributions every month from AmeriCoins, but you've already got a job. So you're already doing quite well. But you see this person who's homeless, and then you're thinking, you know, when they're moving to the digital world anyway, it's like, who's carrying cash to give to homeless people anymore? And because it's a pandemic, and this person might have, um, you know, any number of diseases going forward, and any number of things there as well, you're going to be less inclined to even be giving them money. So A, it's a cashless society, so how do they get money? And then B, you know... What are we going to do then going forward? Whereby if you've got these AmeriCoins and this person's got AmeriCoins and you've had a good month and you can basically just transfer some of your AmeriCoins to them because it's not going to solve everything. All this problem is is going to make no longer make these people worthless. But by doing that, it changes everything. And for a lot of inner city areas where people of, you know, especially from like the African-American communities and stuff like that, have been left behind by generation in terms of generational wealth through property ownership, It'll allow people to have ownership of a property and the property is the federal assets for the first time in history as well. So to me, it changes the trajectory of everything that's going forward with that. And, you know, and that's what sort of tokenization can bring with this as well. And in terms of universal basic income, to me, it just changes trajectory. It just means people are no longer worthless, you know, and then that helps people from there. And then we can start moving into this society whereby you know, we want to help because I think the younger generation coming through and I think coming back to the Bitcoin Cinderella book is, you know, she wants to help the environment. She wants to help. And I think younger people want that now as well. You know, I'm from a generation now whereby, you know, I told someone, you know, I'm just about to turn 50, you know, so it's like I'm no longer spring chicken anymore. And the, my thought process is changing. But you're brought up in this traditional way of thinking. You know, my dad was a bank manager, it was a traditional way. You work hard, pay your taxes. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you contribute to society. The people who fall off the edge, you know, is it, it's the, the way you're taught is well, they've made bad choices, you know, and that bad choice is usually they've got involved in drink and drugs, alcohol and drugs, and they made bad choices, and that's basically what you're saying. But what about the twelve and a half percent veterans and the fifty thousand veterans who are sleeping under bridges tonight and sleeping on the street, you know? They didn't make a bad choice when they went to fight for the country. It doesn't matter which war they went. They still went there. They did their duty for the country. We thank you for your service. But now they're sleeping under a bridge and they can't even access services as well. And, you know, I was speaking, we were speaking about that last week as well, Garrett. And, you know, even they're entitled to services. This is what's crazy. They're entitled to services and healthcare benefits from being an active member or now a retired veteran but they can't access it because they don't have access to a computer to fill in a form to get the services. Exactly. Crazy. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it's coming in there and it's just like, and why does the government not like blockchain and tokenization is, you know, because it holds them more accountable, you know? So we want to hold the government accountable on what they're spending their money on. Like right now, out with what we're spending our money on is every two days, Biden's on the news sending, you know, we're just sending this new $700 million um, rockets to Ukraine. Now, we're not saying it's not horrible what's happening in Ukraine and the war and stuff like that as well. But now we're sending them rockets that can fly into Russia. You know, it's just like, but where does, you've just signed an executive order for $46 billion two weeks ago. 
But now you're into 700 million for this weapon system, which costs one weapon system. That's how much it costs. And we're sending multiple ones. So we can sign executive orders to essentially spend money whenever we want, but we can't seem to sign an executive order to somehow provide access to the internet for veterans who are sleeping under bridges. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a weird way to do it. And then the government just wants that. They just want to hide the statistics and just say, oh, well, it's getting better. It's gone down from 41.2% to 40.13%. So it's like, what's actually happening there as well? They hide statistics with you. So I think when we are going back to what the blockchain and tokenization and what we're speaking about before is, it's like, this is obviously my pet project in terms of I'm trying to do it with you know the physical assets. But really, my goal for the next... You know, if I live for another 30 years in this world of 40 years or 50 years, you know, ideally I want to live to 100, you know what I mean? <laughs> get a telegram from the Queen. You know? <laughs> well, the Queen won't be there. It'll be Queen, Queen whoever, or the King by the time there as well. But that's, yeah. you know, you're, you're looking for a figure. The time is, like, how can we do this? And I think younger people coming through want to help more than ever before. Because they, they see this and they're impacted by this and they look at this and it has a lot of people coming out there and it just can't be, we're going to tax more money, we're going to increase taxes, but we're not going to be held accountable of what this taxation money is spent on because essentially we've got so many problems we want to spend the money on, but we're happy to, you know, essentially be spending a trillion dollars a year in new weapons, you know, because that's essentially what America spends right now is a trillion dollars a year in weapons. So we can't take some of that trillion dollars and spend it to help these veterans who are living under bridges, you know, even getting access, even holding the big software companies, because you, you get into this thing as well, whereby you can't just keep taxing and taxing and taxing these big software companies. But what you can do is you can shame them. You can just basically say to Bill Gates, you know, he's into everything, you know, you're a multi-billionaire. Can you not provide some of your old equipment for homeless people, for people in inner city areas, for Apple products? Can you not give everyone out there an Apple iPhone 7? You know, what's happened to them? <laughs> it's just like, so at least they've got some access to digital wallet than going forward. And then can we not have free internet everywhere? Because we can give free internet everywhere. They just want to charge you money for the internet. Because, you know, if we don't give people free internet and we don't give them devices to be able to access this, you know, this problem is going to get worse and worse and worse. And we spoke about it last week as well, Garrett, was like they're closing all the public libraries. What I didn't realize is closing all the public libraries was actually how homeless people access the internet, you know? Because that that's the way they access. They, that's the way they charge. Their, if they had a phone, they charged the phone in public libraries. If they needed to go online, they went into the internet. If they had to apply for a job or do anything else, it was all through public libraries. And I'm just thinking, oh, well, I don't want to go to public library anymore. I can download it on my Kindle. You know, I never go in and hire it, get a book out and stuff like that. Yeah. You sort of get that. So we just close all that down, everybody. Oh, we saved the money in that. Oh, great for that. But suddenly it's like, boom, what's happening to these people? And I just think it's... It's a scary situation and going forward. And that's what the AmeriCoin is. And, you know, right now, I would say, you know, the uh, Republican and the Democrat Party have like zero monetary policy to help the poorest people in society coming out of the back of COVID, this pandemic, high inflation. Now, whether you think my monetary policy is garbage or not, at least it's a monetary policy and Ledger told me that they can have this in everybody's hand. And they said they can have it whereby they can access these things through fingerprints as well. So people will be able to go in and access this. And they can set up machines to access this. And, they, you know, I spoke to the guy from Ledger about it a lot. And he just said, there's so many ways. And then he said, we could get the companies to put vending machines out there for homeless people. So they don't have to eat in trash cans. And they can go up there with their fingerprint and they can access their wallet and then they can access food, you know, just like, things like that. And, you know, you can, we don't even have payphones anymore. Let's get rid of the payphones, stick these machines in. And he had all sorts of ideas and what we can do. But it's like we don't want to do it because suddenly it's like, you know, now we're holding the government accountable to what they're actually spending the money on. And if people start, you know, drilling into this, you know, the new Top Gun movie's out which is great, you know what I mean? I haven't seen it yet. I'm excited to watch it. It always like uh, what's coming out. But these planes that they're flying are 120 million each, you know? 
the, the cost of an ejector seat costs more than the entire refurbishment at my son's school. But my son's school took 10 years to get the refurbishment. And then they just placed an order for 120 new, you know, F-18 planes. It's like, so it's like, we can find the money for that like this, you know, it's, like, it's not a problem. Oh, it's executive order. You know, problem Biden shows up. Man, Trump used to love his executive orders. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. I've got like 27 executive orders to write. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Straight into law, spending all the money. For them. Yeah. That's, that's all they can do pretty much is write executive orders. They don't have power to do much else. It, 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 it's like it's, it's like a crazy situation, you know. So anyway, so that was I wanted to coming up the, the I, chapter. My no, no, no. It's and I'm really glad that you brought all that up because, um, you know, it's more than just philosophy. It's more than just you know tech talk. There's applications that this can actually help and solve. And like when you're talking about um, using the blockchain for the information flow or even fingerprints, um, you know, for access to wallets, my law hat kind of pops on then. And I keep thinking, okay, what happens if someone needs help? And, you know, again, when you start doing fingerprints or facial recognition, I kind of, um, cringe to be honest, because of the fact that, um, I want the access to be multi-purpose. So if someone needs to help someone else and the fingerprints not available or the face is not available. I want, you know, so I think we need to be doing everything that you're saying. I think we need to think of, of different layers. So that way the, um, the social service individuals that want to help or other individuals, um, again, you want to make sure that there are no bad actors, but you want to make sure that everything is um, obviously accountable, but easily managed. And like you said, you know, giving a phone or a tech, you know, so they have access to it is important. It's also important to make sure there's multiple points of entry, because if you just have one person being able to access it, and then that person is not mentally available, then you need someone else who's their advocate who can, you know, help them, you know, so there's the, I think that this is a brilliant idea. I think it needs to happen. I think we just have to think about the the layers of protection for those that can't advocate for themselves. And I know that, you know, both you and I in the special ed world, we're, we're looking out for those that can't always speak for themselves and uh, that need, you know, those voices and those people to say, we need to do this. Um, and it becomes mainstream. I mean, you take a look at um, how buildings are right now. We have ramps, you know, um, you know, that we have different points of ways to access traditional structures and that actually was created because of you know um different acts that were put in place for those that struggled to kind of walk upstairs and things like that so you know again i think that where we are now where we're going to be in 10 years hopefully we'll be in a different spot and we'll be looking back at this interview and saying it's happened and um you know that's a good thing yeah, most definitely. You know, we were just speaking about it last week with the, and the reason I, I am focusing so much on veterans is because, you know, I go to a lot of different oil shows and there's always some form of veteran charity, charity there. So, you know, when I'm walking around, I always sit and speak to them. And then because I've got a son with special needs, you know, they just speak about mental health and the problems yeah. created. It's, it's just, and it's, and people don't realize that, you know, and, you know, and especially, you know, everyone at home, they're getting taxed, but then, you know, we're just letting these people come in and, you know, they were looking at, they're telling me some of the documentation they have to fill in to access services is like, you know, the old white pages telephone book. Yeah. You know, you can get services, just fill in this book, but you've got to do it online. If you're living under a bridge and you've got shrapnel in your uh, head from a bomb that's gone off in Baghdad eight years earlier, you know, and you've got no place to live, you're surviving day to day, and, and then, don't oh, have and don't have access to the paperwork either. Yeah, that yeah. they want the documentation. Oh, they, you they know? Access and they even they, I was at a first five program and there was this woman there and the funny thing was it was like she had a, a disability herself with her arm, you know. So but she was running the first five program and she was essentially originally from Mexico but a U.S. citizen now and she's running this to help people. And then the first five program came and this guy came along and he was living under a bridge. And he was in the first Iraq war. He did two tours. He was living on a bridge just down in Chula Vista. And then she, he brought all the forms. And she actually 
you know, out with her normal daily job or anything like that. It's nothing to do with what she's doing. She was staying for an hour later to fill in the form so he could access the right medication to get because he had PTSD and all the different services. And I'm just thinking, you know, this is incredible. I'm watching here somebody who's essentially Hispanic, a woman from Tijuana and others in America, helping a veteran fill in forms because he's done two tours, but he can't access the information. And it's like, that woman's a hero for that guy because yeah. he's, she's the only person in the entire world who's actually helping him. Yeah. And it's like, how yeah. can you create a system whereby it's just, it, it's created like that. And the reason I'm focusing so much and keeps talking about veterans is if you can't fix the veteran homeless problem, you can't fix the homeless problem for everyone else. It's as simple as that. There's, there's no way around that, you know, and it's just uh, the people we really owe it to is probably, you know, that should be first and foremost. And I, I can't believe that, you know, maybe that they just haven't taken a little bit more initiative on that. I mean, it, I, you know, when I, I've lived in a lot of different places around the U S but one thing is I've noticed across a lot of different places is the fact that there are many, many, many commercial buildings, especially now after COVID they're completely empty. Yes. Very much know? so. And houses too. There are more vacant houses than homeless people in the United States. You know, is it that hard to just set one of these up as a center and, you know, you know, for veterans or something like that? I mean, is it that hard? No, it's the same as the supermarkets. So the supermarkets throw away more food on a daily basis than it takes to basically feed everyone who's starving. But because they want the insurance money, you know, and they actually write things like, oh, we don't want homeless people turning up by our supermarket out the back door getting free food. It's like, well, can you not just ship the food to somewhere else? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. well, we want the insurance money. You know, we, we need the insurance. Yeah. So we are getting food put in containers so we can eat every tip well, until the supply chain problems are coming in. So there's shortages. But even then, generally, if you went to Walmart, you go to things, it's not like the, the stocks, you know, the, you know, we run out of toilet paper and stuff like that, a couple of things. But generally, there's always food there. But the shelf life's so short now. They keep these things in massive containers. They're frozen. They're put in the shelf. They're there for three, four days. And they can still be good. But then they don't want to get sued in case someone eats something that's off. So we just chuck it away because they want the insurance money for that. So how come the, the supermarkets out there, and we should, and they're making millions and millions and millions of dollars of profit from throwing away food and insurance policies. So why is that not coming in? And it's a bit like, and I think what the, you know, the metaverse and Web3 and all this technology converging is, we can start to put pressure on these people at the right points. And the points don't have to be through politicians anymore. Because the politicians, no matter who you are, they're, they're owned by whoever the lobbyist has given them money. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter who you say you represent. You know, I was reading about AOC. You know, she represents Queens. 97% of her money funding comes out with Queens. So who are you accounting? And then some months she's taken twelve to $15 million in donations. So she's not stupid. People go, she's stupid. Oh, yeah, she's really stupid making $15 million a month in donations, you know? But she's getting that money in. You know, and she asks a lot of right questions. I don't believe in all her answers, but I, I quite often say she's asking a lot of right questions. And then it's America. You shouldn't want to shut these people up. You want them to keep asking questions. But again, it's like it just gets stuck in Congress and the Senate. And then, it, you know, the lobbyists get involved and they've taken money. And it doesn't get a solution that goes out there as well. But with what's happening with technology like the blockchain is suddenly it's like, we can, we can put peer pressure on these people to change things, you know? And it's just a bit like if everyone out there started to put pressure on, you know, the supermarkets. So if we all decided on a Monday, let's decide where we're going to go. Let's not go to Walmart this week, everybody. We'll all go to Target. And next week, we'll all go to Walmart. And next week, we'll do this. We'd only have to mess up their supply chain for about six weeks. And they would all kowtow, you know? Oh, and then, you know, oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, well, we'll just put that food in that, you know, that distribution system you talked about. And you can put your big adverts on the side as well. No profit advertising for you. You can give it to there. Because in California, I don't want to go into a gas station 
to just be putting gas in my car and have a guy raking around a bin that just looks like prehistoric man or prehistoric woman who's so dirty and black, not washed there and long hair, raking around and finding any bit of morsel of food at the bottom of this trash can and then eating it because they're starving that much. And then I'm just going along to Walmart to see what's happened there as well. And it's just like, and essentially we're just becoming conditioned just to ignore these people, you know? And I think people can start to change with that as well. You know, I can sit and talk about this stuff all day long. So I, I believe the blockchain and tokenization and metaverse and all these things can solve these problems. And I think with people out there and the young people understanding that as well, it's like, this is what this technology can do, you know? It's yeah. just like, how can you help with this technology? And, and something that you mentioned, it's really important for us not to disconnect from people and relationships. And the blockchain, I think, can bring people together um, in a way that we haven't seen before. So I, I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of positivity there. But you're right. We have to act. We just can't ignore Okay, but so that's perfect. So that's just to hit the hour, everybody. We've managed to talk about um, the yeah. Bitcoin Cinderella book. It's been an absolute pleasure to get you on. We'll get you, you on so as, as you uh, launch each book as well, you know. And then you should definitely speak to Gannett about the, the, the carbon tracking side of stuff I he's working on. I just think that is just, it fits in definitely with the model of what you're doing, you know? Yes. And it's been a pleasure being on. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing too. You've been an inspiration to me on so many levels. Thank you so much. Okay. So thanks to Crypto Mom too. We'll have a link to the, the book in uh, the show notes below. Um, you've been watching Boom, It's on the Blockchain. Thanks very much. Have a nice day. <laughs>